Last week launched our two-week Christmas series, Joy to the World, and we're continuing that idea this morning. Um, by the way, it's here. Uh, it's here. It's, it's Wednesday, three days away. You can't even get Amazon Prime to get your stuff here on time now. It's over, like you're done. Let me ask you this. How many of you have everything finished, everything's wrapped and under the tree? Okay, good. A lot of people don't like you right now, but good. How many of you still have work to do? All right, there's my people. All right, fantastic. Uh, we're, uh, we looked at this verse last week. This is Philippians 4, verse 4, and it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. In fact, I want you to say that with me. Everybody say it. Rejoice. Come on, from the back of the room to the front row. Everybody say it one more time. Rejoice. It's almost hard to say that without smiling a little bit. Your lips kind of curl. You can't say that with a frown. Rejoice. You can't do it. Rejoice. Your, your lips smile when you say it. Joy or rejoicing are mentioned 16 times in the book of Philippians, which we started looking at last week, which wouldn't be that big of a deal if Paul weren't sitting in a jail cell while he's writing this. And he keeps talking about joy. He keeps talking about rejoicing. He could be in the worst possible situation yet have the best possible attitude. How is that possible? How do you have joy in jail? You ever met somebody like that? Just has a terminal diagnosis and they can't stop smiling. They lost their job, still got joy. Don't you just want to punch them in the throat? Like, why aren't you mad? Get depressed, right? I mean, it's, I don't understand how those people have that. That's what we're talking about today. I think that's the heart of this series. That's the heart of what Paul's talking about. This is not a series for people who are already joyful. You kind of figured it out. This is a series for people who have Apostle Paul-sized problems. How do you choose genuine joy instead of displaying despair on your face? How does that happen? Let's look at John 16, once more. We looked at this last week. This is where Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And then he says, in this world you're going to have trouble but take heart, translation, be comforted, calm down, I've overcome the world. Now that, that take heart, that is actually in, in the Greek, it's one word, translated into English, it's two words, but it's the Greek word tharseo, and the word tharseo literally translates as be of good comfort or be of good cheer. He's saying, hey, this world's full of trouble, but tharseo, be of good cheer, be of good comfort, I've, I've overcome the world. So yeah, there's, there's trouble in the world, and I'm not promising you're not going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble, but I'm, I'm promising you you're going to have the hope to rise out of that trouble. You're, I, you've got an overcomer living inside of you. Tharseo, be of good cheer, be of good comfort. And Jesus says this word a few times in Scripture. This is the last time he says it. And by the way, this is the day before he gets arrested to go to the cross. And he's going, be of good cheer. Tharseo, be of good comfort. I'm about to be beaten within an inch of my life. I know they're going to drive spikes through my hands and my feet. I'm going to be nailed to the most painful, excruciating instrument of torture known to mankind. But Tharseo, be of good cheer, be of good comfort. That's a hard halftime speech when the scoreboard's not in your favor. I looked up all the times Jesus said Tharseo, be of good cheer, be of good comfort. Do you know that he never said it on a sunny day? He never once said it in a happy moment because you don't need to tell cheerful people to cheer up. Jesus looked at a man one time who was lying paralyzed on a mat and he said in Matthew 9, Tharseo, be of good cheer, be of good comfort. Which is interesting because he didn't say it after he got healed. 
That would have been something pretty special, right? He heals him and then he says, be of good cheer. Well, of course he's going to be of good cheer. I'm no longer paralyzed. But he doesn't say it then. He eventually heals him. He eventually walks away. But he says it while he's still in his paralyzed state. Be of good cheer. Tharseo. Be of good comfort. Why? Why does he do that? Because Jesus doesn't want our joy... He doesn't want our good cheer and our good comfort to be in our situational improvement. He doesn't want your good cheer to be tethered to what he did for you, but rather who he is for you in your life. Let me say that one more time because Betty got it, but the rest of you, I don't know about you. He doesn't want your joy, your good cheer, your good comfort to be tethered to what he did for you, but rather who he is for your life. I'll amen myself. Amen, Reed. That's good preaching. Come on. Like, amen. Yeah. Who he is for you. That's what he wants your joy tethered to. Not what he did for you, but who he is for you. Tharseo, be of good cheer. That's the part of Paul's message as, as he's talking to followers of Christ in Philippians. So we're going to go back to Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 3. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me there. We're going to kind of go through the whole chapter and not read it really verse by verse, but more thematically throughout the chapter. To set this up, Philippi is part of the Roman Empire. And it was an important part of the Roman Empire because there was a civil war that took place there in 42 BC. And as a result of the civil war, the Roman emperor granted Philippians the right to become Roman citizens. You say, what's the big deal with that? Well, the Roman Empire was made up of 70 million people, but only 9% got to be actual Roman citizens. And so that was a pretty big deal for Philippians to say, hey, we're Roman citizens. And so they were finding their identity, they were finding their joy in their citizenship of Rome. So he's dealing with that issue. Not only that, but you have this religious group there that's forming known as the Way, or Christ followers. The Way is how it's put. That's really cool and organic. But they're just followers of Jesus. And you also have this other religious group known as Judaizers who taught that you need to be identified by your good works, by the good things that you do. And not only your good works, but also how you look and how you treat your body and how you dress, those kinds of things. So Paul's dealing with two huge issues, their, their identity in the Roman citizenship and their identity in how good of a person they can be. And Paul's addressing that when he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Look at verse 4 in Philippians 3. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Doesn't that sound almost arrogant of Paul? <laughs> but then he goes through his resume. Look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteous, based on the law, faultless. So let me put that in a modern language for you. He goes, you want to talk about family? I was born to the right parents. They have connections. You want to talk about education? Ivy League with honors. You want to talk about power? I have authority over my enemies. I say go and the guy goes. I can persecute my enemies. You want to talk about religion? I've never missed a day of church. I've memorized more Bible than you've forgotten. You want to talk about respect? Elders call me and ask for advice. You want to talk about anything? Money, staff, stuff, status, whatever measuring tool you want to use, I'm better than you. That's what he's saying. But then look what he says. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So Paul says, you're putting your joy in the wrong things. The apostle Paul does not find his joy in his resume or in his accomplishments. He says, I know I'm better than you using any measuring tool that you want to use, but I no longer point to what I accomplished. I point to what Christ has accomplished for me. That's where I find my joy. And he makes a really big effort to explain this so you and I would not find joy in what we've done, but on what was done on our behalf. That's where we find our joy. This is so important. I really feel like this is one of the hardest lessons to learn in Christianity outside of the incomprehensibly massive grace of God. The money you make does not bring you joy. The job you possess does not bring you joy. Who you date, who your family is, who you're related to, how many followers you have on Instagram, where you live, what you look like, those aren't bad things. It's just not the source of joy. Paul says those things are garbage. In fact, he, he uses a very vulgar word. In the Greek, he goes, it, it's dung. Like, it's dung. It's that, that stuff is nothing to me. Let me explain it like this, and it's kind of philosophical, and I don't want to get caught into a loop too early on in the message, but I think the most honest answer of where do you find joy is where will you find joy permanently? That's the most, where do I find joy? Where will I find joy permanently? I had my 20-year class reunion this last summer, and our homecoming queen did not attend, but had she come, right? (laughs) What if she walked in and she, she was wearing her tiara, right? Look at me. Right, 20 years later, still fabulous, right? We would all laugh at her and go, that's really sad that you're still wearing the tiara from 20 years ago. Even though that was really, really important at some point in her past. He goes, I'm not pointing at my past accomplishments. What is that? That's garbage. I'm not even pointing at my present accomplishments. That's not my source of joy. Look at verse eight. I consider them garbage. I may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which, uh, which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness coming from God on the basis of faith. So he's saying it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness in me. And righteousness is just a big churchy word that means right standing with God. So like my wife and I, we, we have right standing with each other. Right? And there's certain things that I do that get on her nerves. Like leave all my stuff out in the bathroom, right? I just, I leave it all out there. And that drives her crazy. And this morning, I left all my stuff out on the bathroom. And when I get home, she's not gonna go, that's it, we're done. Right? She's not gonna do that. We have right standing. In the same way, I'm gonna blow it. And I'm gonna stand before God one day and he's gonna go, yeah, I knew you blew it today, but we're good. We're good, we have right standing. And that's what he offers you, not based on anything you've done, but based on what Christ did on your behalf. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Did you catch that? Because that's true about you too. He goes, the greatest thing about me, like if you want to point about anything about me, if there's one thing great about me, it's not anything I've done, it's what he did for me. Like the greatest thing about me is not anything I did. The greatest thing about me is what he did for me. That's the greatest thing about me. Like that's a crazy cool thing to think about. What's the most amazing thing you could possibly accomplish? Like that would outweigh any 
promotion, trophy, or award? Like, what's the greatest thing? Let's start with living forever, eternal life. Let's go to being buried in the grave and coming out and being raised to life. Like, what am I going to say? I had straight A's in high school. Like, what am I going to say next to that? He goes, I, I can't point to my accomplishments. I only point to what Christ has done for me. Right? I got nothing. Here's the first of two points. If you're taking notes this morning, jot this down. You find joy in Christ's accomplishment, not your accomplishments. That's where you find your joy. It's in Christ's accomplishment, not your accomplishments. Paul's not going to stack up his accomplishments next to Christ. He's not going to say, I've never missed a day of Sunday school when he's standing next to perfection. Now, there's something else key happening in this text. Look at the next few verses. This is verse 12. Verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I'm forgetting what is behind, I'm straining toward what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. I, I press on, he says, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm not looking back, I'm looking forward. I'm not looking back to my past. I've done some really awful things, Paul says. Worse things than you could even imagine. He goes, I'm not dwelling on that stuff. Some of us cannot see Christ's forgiveness past our own sins. When we look at the cross in history, we just see our own mess. Paul says, I'm not going to dwell on that stuff. I'm not going to let my past define my future. He's not sitting there saying, hey, remember when they stoned Stephen? I was there. I took joy in his death. As warped as that, as that is. I, I persecuted Christians and threw them in jail. I murdered them. Woe is me. I'm unqualified. I can't do ministry. He's not saying that. He's, I'm not, not looking at what's behind. I'm straining toward what's ahead. He says, I'm not even going to talk about the abuse that I've endured. Remember when I was in Antioch and all of my friends who I thought were my friends stoned me? I'm not going to talk about that either. He says, I'm forgetting about what's behind me and moving toward what's ahead. I'm looking forward toward the prize. I've asked people before, if you died tonight, do you think you'd go to heaven? And sometimes I get the response of, I don't think so. And I say, why? Well, I've just done some things. What do you mean? I've just done some bad things. And they think that's a humble response. It's not a humble response. It's actually quite arrogant. Because if you believe that you've done some things that are going to keep you out of heaven, that, believe, that means you believe that you can do some things to get you into heaven. Listen, I can't do anything to get to heaven. There's nothing, there's no accomplishment, there's nothing I can do that gets me into heaven. The only way I get to heaven is what Christ did for me and what Christ did for you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, not by accomplishments, not by crowns and trophies and awards, not by promotions, not by works so no one can boast. I can't boast in what I've done. Hey, look, I earned heaven. No, no, no. It's what Jesus did for me. That's the only thing I can boast in is the cross of Christ. And so, you're not good enough to get to heaven. And you can't be bad enough, this is just as important, to be kept from heaven. It's not about your good or bad works. It's about what Christ did for you on the cross. And the cross doesn't belittle my sin. It only magnifies his grace. 
and just says his grace is sufficient. His mercy is new every morning and it endures forever. It shows how much he loves you. 39 years of sin in my life washed away. I remember when I was in high school, I'd just gotten my license. I was 16 and I was dating an older woman who was 17. Yeah, I had it. Still got it, Zach. Don't you forget about that, bub. And uh, I, took, I, took, I took her to lunch. I didn't have my own set of wheels. And so I had to drive my mom's Bonneville. And nothing says handsome and sexy like a Bonneville. <laughs> so we're driving, driving to lunch. And we get, we're on 42nd Street. Okay. And, uh, and we're driving towards college. And I get to that four-way stop sign. You probably know where I'm talking about. From the high school. And uh, I stop and I looked to my left, there was no car. Looked to my right, there were no car. Looked in front of me, there were no cars. So I proceeded through the intersection. And a police officer, I'm not real sure where he came from, but he got behind me. And you know, you just panic a little bit when that happens. You're just like, right, my gauges are good. Like I got my seatbelt on, your seatbelt's on. Okay, we're good, we're good, we're good. So I pull onto College Avenue. And if you're in high school, you get this because that's kind of a busy time. Everybody's out, all your buddies are out. And that's when he pulls me over. Right, I'm like, oh, great. So everybody is seeing me getting pulled over on College Avenue. So he comes up to the window, and I'm still, like, confused why I'm getting pulled over. And he comes up to the window, and he says, license and registration, please. So I give him my license registration. He goes, Mr. Johnson, you realize you ran that stop sign back there on 42nd Street? And I knew what he was talking about, but I, I couldn't, for the life of me, understand why I was getting a ticket for that or how I ran that. I said, well, I looked to the left, I looked to the right, I looked in front of me. I didn't see any cars, so I proceeded through the intersection. He goes, no, 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 when you stop, you need to feel a jerk. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, you're a jerk. And I didn't say that, but I thought about it. <laughs> and he wrote me a ticket. So I get back, and like, now I'm like, I've got consternation because I'm thinking about, i got to tell my mom. Like, I haven't even had my license that long, and that was embarrassing. This girl's with me, and i got to... <sighs> So I'm talking to some of my friends in my, in my class that was right after lunch and they're like, oh, that's gonna go on your record. And I don't know why, that panicked me. I'm like, what, on my record? And they're like, yeah, it's on your driving record. I'm on my record, because I don't, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But back then I kind of thought it was a massive deal. And I, I just pictured myself like nine years later applying for a job, Mr. Johnson. We uh, really liked you, we were gonna hire you, but we saw that you had a stop sign on your record so we went with Bob right I just was so afraid that they were not going to let me it's going to follow me like this record was just going to track me through my life and so then somebody else told me but if you go to the judge and uh and you ask for defensive driving that they can give you defensive driving and you can get it off your record <gasps> sounds like a great plan so I went <laughs> I went down to the uh, city hall and, and presented him. I was wearing like a five-piece suit. I don't know. I was like really, I really wanted to impress him. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to whip up tears, you know, and I said, I want to take defensive driving and they allowed me to take defensive driving. I took defensive driving. I got the certificate. I went and hand delivered the certificate and I said, okay, this is, the, I took defensive driving and so this is off my record, right? And they said, yes. And I said, so it's not going to be on my record anymore? And they said, no. I said, so my record's clean? Yes, it's clean, Mr. Johnson. And I just felt so relieved that it wasn't on my record. Isn't that the grace of Jesus Christ, right? It's not that you didn't do the thing. I still ran the stop sign. It's just that it doesn't follow me throughout my life. It's not on my record. Everything that you've done, he goes, I'm not counting your sins against you. Second Corinthians 5, I'm not counting that mess against you. It's not on your record. It's not on your record. 
So you got drunk, not on your record. Pornography, not on your record. Dishonesty, not on your record. Praise God, it's not on our record. That's, I got three amens. It's not on your record. That's an amen. If I've ever heard an amen, I'm not going to get to heaven and, and Pete's going to go, that stop sign. No, it's not on my record. It's not on your record. Verse 15. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So what's he talking about here? Well, he switched it. He's talking about maturity now. Maturity. So kind of like if you were to ask a high school student, hey, did you, make, did you make the basketball team? No. It's okay though. I still have joy. Because I realize in 10 years, it's not going to matter that I made the basketball team. Now, if you were talking to that high school student in that moment, you would go, wow, that is a really mature response. Right? You have such maturity that you would realize it's not that big of a deal. There are things happening in your lives right now. And some of you are going, wow, that is just so important. It's just such a big deal. No, it's not. It's not going to matter 100 years from now. It's just not going to matter. Or we can let those things completely devastate us, which is what some of you are allowing to happen. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. She says, so we're not focused on punishment from our past sins because Christ has forgiven that. A God who stands outside of time sees you as a finished product, as a sinless, glorified state. He says, you put your faith in me, that's how I see you, as a finished product. I know you're not finished today, but that's how I see you. Why can't we see ourselves that way? Think about it this way. It's like I'm running a race. And I've already been guaranteed a prize. All I have to do is finish the race. Like I've already been guaranteed if I just finish the race, I get a prize. And if I fall down, I don't have to win the race. I just have to finish the race. What am I going to do? I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep running because all I have to do is cross the finish line and I get the prize. In Christianity, listen, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. You're going to look at something you shouldn't. You're going to do something illegal. You're going to say or think something immoral. But you don't stay down. you got to get yourself back up, dust yourself off, because you're straining toward the prize at the end of the race. In fact, Proverbs 24, 16 says, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the, the wicked continue to stumble when calamity strikes. In other words, if I fall down seven times, I'm going to get up seven times. But the wicked, they just stay down. They just, ah, ah. You're going to mess up. And Paul says, it's okay. Get up. Dust yourself off. Keep running the race. You've already been given the prize if you just finish. Verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, so think about what's happening here. So Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter to the church at Philippi and he's getting emotional. So emotional that he tells them, I'm getting emotional. Like I'm crying as I'm writing this letter. Because so many of you are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's breaking my heart. He says in verse 19, their destiny is destruction. In other words, these people are going to hell. I mean, I'm that's just blunt, but he says that's what's happening. Their destiny is their destruction. 
Their God is their stomach. Meaning, he says, they're just feeding their appetites. Whatever feels good, do it. They're living in a hedonistic culture where I just, yeah, that, that's good. I, that feels good. I'll do that. They feed their desires. And he says, their glory is in their shame. Their glory is, man, look what I did last weekend. Guess who I hooked up with? Hey, check out this video. <laughs> and their glory is in the things that Christ died for. They're joyous of their sin. He says their mind is set on earthly things. So in this list of people whose destiny is destruction, he punctuates it with their mind is set on the world. So they're trying to be a really big deal in this world and they have no thought process to the world that is to come. And this might hurt a little bit, but for some of you, your glory might be in your shame. Your conscience is sheer, uh, seared and you begin to find your joy in the number of partners you had or what you had to, to do last night uh, or how you took advantage of someone else's misfortune and profited. Your glory is in your shame. You're celebrating the things Christ died for, the very things that held Christ to the cross entertain you. And we need to have a come to Jesus moment where we say, take my life, Lord. I'm tired of my destiny being destruction. I'm tired of my glory being in my shame. I'm tired. I want my glory to be in you. I don't want to wake up at 2 a.m. anymore and return to the same coping mechanism that I have for years. I want to turn to you. For a young lady to say, I, I, I'm tired of returning to that bad relationship. I know he's bad for me. And I keep going to the same bad relationship like a dog returns to its vomit. And I'm tired of it. My glory's in my shame. I want to turn to you, Jesus. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to, as we sang about a minute ago, to be Lord of all. I want that. I'm going to step into the light. I'm going to give my life to you and I want you to take over. Verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So remember, he's writing to people who put their identity and their joy in their citizenship of Rome. He goes, no, 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 your citizenship isn't in Rome, it's in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's how it ends. Our bodies will be like his glorious body. What happens then in that moment, for the next billion years times infinity, what happens then, what happens in that moment then, what brings you joy then, that's what should bring you joy now. Is it the job you had or the girl you dated? No. A lot of you know my story, but some of you might not. When I, uh, we moved to Snyder when I was three years old, and uh, my dad was hired to be president of a bank here in town. And we were banking, literally and figuratively. Uh, our family was doing very well financially, and we built a brand new house on 33rd Street, and um, life was pretty good. But in the late 80s, the banks started to struggle, uh, all of the banks, uh, the banking industry. And my dad lost his job. And so uh, my mom went back to teaching school, a lot of you might have had her as a teacher. Uh, she was just trying to bring some source of income. And for 
almost a year, not quite a year, my dad went unemployed trying to figure out what's next because all he'd really done was banking. So he opened up Taco John's and uh, that incurred some more debt, but we kind of gone into debt over the course of that year. I thought, what's some more debt? <laughs> opened this restaurant and it did well. But when you're selling 99 cent tacos, uh, it's pretty tough to make a dent when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So fast forward to 1992. Uh, my dad, because of pride, ended up taking his life. Um, I remember he wrote us a letter and uh, told me I was the man of the house. Gave us some instructions of what we could do to try to make ends meet. He was just embarrassed because he'd failed his family financially in his mind. And uh, I was really mad at God, really mad at God. Some of you that were part of our church at that time, you may remember me coming here in the months to follow. I did not want to be here. My mother made me come. I was 12. And I, I came against my own will because I was mad at him. How could he allow this to happen? Fast forward six months to March of 93, and there was a, a conference in Lubbock, like a youth conference. And I wasn't even part of the youth group, but for some reason I got to go. And so we went to this youth conference, and the guy that was speaking was a guy by the name of Dawson McAllister. Many of you remember he used to have a radio program on KGNZ. And for some reason, there were a handful of us, Nicholas Means and myself and some others, that got to go backstage and meet Dawson. And there's like 6,000 people at this event. And we got to go backstage and meet him. We were one of a handful of people. And I do not remember why I was chosen. I do not remember. But I got backstage, and here is Dawson McAllister. Dawson's back was hurting that day. And he was kind of leaning up against the table. And you could tell his back was hurting. And he was just like, he was in pain. And, uh... I'd been screaming at God for six months and I'd gotten no response. And so here is this God figure in my mind and so I'm gonna let him have it and maybe he has something to say. And so I just start dumping on this poor guy. Like, please don't ever do that to me. <laughs> That's what I did to him. I just let him have it. And I said, if God is love, then how could he allow this to happen? And if God's omnipotent, why can't he bring my bad dad back from the dead? And he kind of leaned up from his position, his, his leaning position. And he opened his Bible and he showed me a verse in Hebrews 12 too, which says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy. That's what we're talking about. For the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. And then you turn one page in the Bible to James 1, 2, which says, consider it pure joy. Same word. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, he said, read, if Jesus can have joy going to the cross, 
And I can't imagine that. I, I can't. I, like, I've, I've seen The Passion of the Christ. If you've seen that, it's really ha- hard to have joy even watching the film, let alone imagining going through the film and what Jesus endured. He said, if Jesus can have joy enduring the cross, you can have joy in the trials of your life. And that seems really simplistic. But I got joy to the world that day. It just clicked in my head. I thought, wow, if Jesus can have joy, I too can have joy. It's a choice. Choose it. Find it. I want to show you one more verse. We started this whole thing with Philippians 3, and we've gone all the way through the passage to the very last verse, but I didn't start with the first verse. I'm going to show you the first verse now. This is so beautiful. It says, whatever happens, whatever happens, Whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever happens, brothers and sisters, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Whatever happens, whatever happens, rejoice. What about whatever happens? But I got the whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. Whatever happens. Rejoice. Christian joy is the great pleasure and happiness that we feel. Whether or not the sun is shining, whether or not our team is winning, whether or not we're healthy or hurting, because our Redeemer lives, we belong to him and he is making all things new. And so joy is a choice. It's not an emotion we feel. It's a state of being that we choose. Choose joy. Choose joy. Choose it. Here's what I'd love to do. I would love to, uh, to pray for you. Because there's some of you in the room that it's not joyous. When you're singing joy to the world just moments ago, you didn't have that genuine joy inside of you because of something that's happening. I'm telling you, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Consider it pure joy. He's painting on a canvas bigger than you can see. And even though your blinders look really bad, just think, he, I, I'm bigger than that. I'm making all things new. Here's what I'd love to do is I'd love to pray for you. But there's some of you in here, it's tough for you to get joy because joy is also a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 6. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It lists them all out. And if I don't have the Spirit of the living God, it's going to have difficulty building up joy. I need God in my life. So I want to give you an opportunity to invite God into your life today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd love to ask you this question. If you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you go to heaven? And if your answer is, well, I don't know, I've done some things. Again, that's not a humble response. That's an arrogant response. You can't do anything to get to heaven. And there's nothing you can do that can be kept you from heaven. It's only by what Christ has done for you and what you believed about that on earth. So if you did believe, you will receive the gift of salvation and eternal life. You gotta believe that though. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I wanna give you a chance to confess that, to believe that this morning so you will walk out of here a different person eternally than you walked in today. 
I'm not going to make you stand up or come to the front. I'm just going to ask you to pray this simple prayer with me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you did die for my sins. That you were buried and that you rose again. You beat death and you beat hell. And now you give that authority to me. Because today I put my faith in you. I have righteousness now. I have right standing with God again. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything you've done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I would like to ask one favor of you. If you prayed that prayer with me, even if you're watching at home, I would love for you to let me know because I'm a pastor. I want to help you take a next step. And so here's what you can do. There's two things you can do. If you're in the building, you can take a connection card in the pew back in front of you, fill that out. At the bottom, it says, I'm committing my life to Jesus today. Check that box. That card will get back to me. You can either hand it to me or better yet, you can hand it to somebody in the foyer at the information table and they'll give you a free t-shirt just for showing up today. Check that box. Let me know in that way. If you are watching online or you're watching on cable television today, um, there's another way. You can take out your cell phone and you can text the word SAVED to the number that's on the screen. It's 325-221-3001. 325-221-3001. Just text the word SAVED. That will get back to me and I will follow up with you and give you some next steps in this new journey with God. Come on, church family. Let's real big, give them a big round of applause for everybody who gave their faith to Christ today. That's awesome. That's why we exist for that moment.